And we're going to read from verse 18. And uh, we're not going to sing at this moment, so I, I know you're all sitting comfortably. So I, we're going to do uh, what is done in a lot of the Orthodox churches and what was done in the early church when God's Word is being read. Uh, we will stand, please. And at the end, I will uh, say, this is the Word of the Lord, and we respond by saying, thanks be to God. So let's stand and hear God's Word being read. Acts, uh, Romans chapter 8 and verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also, along with Him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord." Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. We're going to look at, uh, in fact, if you go across into 1 John, and uh, if someone has a pew Bible, could you shout out the number, please, because I've done it again. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Anyone got a pew Bible? Page, sorry, Claire. 1225, 1 John, 
Um, also, can I have the wee thing that moves these, this on? Steve, do you have it there? Or... Thanks. Great. Well, let's read First uh, John 2. Thank you very much. Where it just simply says this, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. I went to uh, St. Andrews on Thursday to hear a lecture by Dr. David Wilkinson, physics uh, teacher and also theologian, on God and the Big Bang. He gave a talk about the universe, which was phenomenal, and I was sitting there, and I, I, I don't often have this urge. You, my charismatic friends here, you often have this urge, but I didn't. I wanted to shout, hallelujah. And then I wanted to stand up and say, you complete idiots, how come any of you can deny that there's a God after hearing that? It was just fantastic, the incredible beauty of the universe. How can you not believe? Or, um, some of you will know the song by Lou Reed, I see trees of green, skies of blue, clouds that are white, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. How can people not believe? Except, I visited somebody who said to me, I, I don't really want to talk to you. I don't believe in God anymore. My two husbands have died. My one-month-old child died. My brother dropped dead when I was talking to him on the phone. I have MS, and I've now been told I've got lymph cancer. How can you believe in God? It's the classic and the age-old problem of suffering. And I think that for most ordinary people, it is the biggest obstacle to faith. And that's a real shame because the answer to that is given in the Scriptures. And you look at the passage, 1 John 2, 1 to 2, you say, well, what's that got to do with suffering? This is the very heart of the gospel. If you don't get this, you are going to end up with a gospel that just does not uh, work. You see, the lady who was speaking to me, what she's really saying is, here's a picture and there's something wrong with this picture. Therefore, God is either not the artist or He's not a very good artist. But what she's missing and what we need to ask is, what if the picture was spoiled? The question then becomes not why is the picture spoiled, but can anything be done about it? Is it possible to restore that picture? You would be a fool to deny that there was something wrong with the world. Lou Reed was wrong. It's not always, well, okay, skies are blue today, which is why we've got such a problem with the screen, because we didn't anticipate sunshine in Scotland in February with the low winter sun. But it's not always the case that that is what is going on. And sometimes skies are gray, and sometimes you just wonder, what did I do that all this bad stuff is really happening? There is something wrong with the picture of the world that we are in, and yes, God has done something about it. He's not only the original artist, He is the restorer. But how can God do that without destroying the original? Because you, if you stick with the analogy of the picture, you can say, this picture is spoiled, it's ruined beyond repair, just scrap it, take the frame perhaps, and make a completely new one. Or you could just paint over the whole thing and say, let's start all over again. So why doesn't God do that? 
How can God restore the world without destroying the world? Well, that's what we look at, and that's what John addresses here. And you'll notice that he addresses the people um, very affectionately. He says, my dear children. This is something that is very, very real. I, I believe that if we think about this as Christians, we don't avoid it. We get right to the heart of it, get right to the heart of the gospel, then we'll be able to share with people compassionately, not flippantly, but compassionately, what God has done. And I think when you discover what God has done, you, you, and you see the evil that's in the world, you have these two things together, then it, it, again, for me, it's just incredibly hard not to believe. So, if you're here and you're not a Christian, or you're here and you're wondering about all these things, things that stop you, you know, I don't believe in God because of what happened in Haiti and so on, let's, let's look at it in, in, in these terms. And so, first of all, we look at the problem. Okay? Now, here's the problem that John says. I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin. When, if we were to ask people, what are the problems that we have just now? Most of us would say relationship, health, work, lack of finance. Or if you ask this question, if there's one thing you could ask God for, not about, but God for, what would you ask for? A million pounds in the bank, uh, you know, cured of my illness and so on. Um, lady I was meeting said, well, what I would ask is, why doesn't God just cure cancer? That's the question that I would ask. Well, actually, our greatest need goes even deeper than a cure for cancer, and our greatest need goes even deeper than having lots of money in the bank, even, which may seem strange to you if you're sitting here worrying about your finances. And it's to do with this question of sin. And I've put up three quotes there uh, that I picked up just from recent newspaper and magazine articles about sin. First comes from uh, potential Prime Minister David Cameron writing in The Spectator. Uh, he said this, while those on the political left are essentially pessimists, believing that people will do the wrong thing unless they are told what to do by government, we on the center-right are optimists. We have faith that most people are good and will do the right thing if only you trust them. Now, I'm not going to make a political point on anything about this. I'm not going to go there. The church should not go down that route. But there was an old-style conservatism which was the very opposite of that, which basically said the purpose of government is to restrain evil because people will do evil. Here, Mr. Cameron is saying people are essentially good, so just let them be. Now, that just, that's a view of humanity which may sound nice. That is the Lou Reed, skies are blue, people are wonderful. And, and it is a disastrous view because it doesn't take into account the reality and the depth and the significance and the nature and the power of what we're, what is sin. The second quote there is from John Betjeman from his poem, Huxley Hall, which I just thought was quite nice, actually. And um, he's talking from the perspective, really, of a very middle-class uh, British person who's, you know, having his dinner party and all that kind of stuff. And this is what he says, not my vegetarian dinner, not my lime juice minus gin, quite can drown a faint conviction that we may be born in sin. In other words, he's saying there's just something still, a residue within us that's saying there's something wrong with us. There's something not right. With all our niceness, with all our lovely meals, with all our comfortableness, there's still something that says there's something fundamentally wrong. 
And the third quote is, goes away from that comfort completely. It's from Marek Edelman, who died uh, a month ago. He's the last surviving leader of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising in Poland during the Second World War. And describing what he said, what he saw, he said, man is evil. By nature, man is a beast. That's what he saw. So, he's saying that there's this enormous problem that exists. Now, that, the whatever you think, I mean, a lot of people just don't like the word sin. They don't like being called a sinner. They, they want to be told uh, that they are just wonderful. God has a wonderful plan for the life, and they are wonderful. I, I sat through a whole Joel Osteen sermon, yes, last night, and it was incredible because everything was about how wonderful you are and how Jesus will make you wonderful and even more wonderful, and you're wonderful, and you really deserve it. God loves you because you deserve it, and God has a wonderful plan for your life. John, I was going to say something. I was going to say John would have thrown up at that, but he, he would just have been so angry about that because it's so antithetical to what the gospel is saying. John is speaking to these people, and he's, he loves these people, and he's saying, look, if you say you haven't sinned, you make him out to be a liar. If you don't recognize what sin is, if you don't take it seriously, then you're in real, real trouble. He's been writing to these Christians, and, and he's saying, I want you to know fellowship. I want you to know joy. And yet, fellowship and joy are disrupted by sin. How do we deal with this problem of sin? It keeps getting in the way. Now, there's a huge irony here, because some of you are not Christians, and it's like at the Christianity Explored, one of the questions you often hear from people is, why do I need Jesus? I'm quite happy. You know, you say, if you're a Christian, you'd be saying, no, 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 you're not. You're really miserable. And they go, no, actually, I'm not. I look at Christians, and you're miserable, but I, I'm, I'm happy. I've got a good job. I've got my flat screen TV. My family's doing okay. I've got my health. I'm not a really bad person. What? I don't see what you're talking about. And so, Jesus is offered as the antidote to sin, a sin which people, most people say, well, I don't need Jesus because I'm, I'm actually not that sick. I don't need a doctor when I'm not sick. It's the same problem that existed in the New Testament. And so, it, the irony here is that people who are not Christians very often don't think they have a problem with sin, whereas those of us who are Christians and have been forgiven very often become more and more conscious of sin. It's a paradox. The more I go on, the more I learn about Jesus, the more I learn about myself, the more I am aware of sin. Let me say this to those of you who think that sin is not your big problem. I would suggest this. The only reason that you can say that, the only reason you can make that statement is because you don't know what sin is, and you don't really know who you are. And when you do grasp a little bit of it, you often blame shift. You act as your own serpent. There's an old poem it's a bit corny, but it goes like this. Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the serpent, and the serpent hadn't got a leg to stand on. That's a terrible man. <laughs> but that's, that's true. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden, isn't it? Apart from the last bit. But uh, it, it, it's Adam turned around and, and, and said, it was that woman you gave me, it's her fault. And what did Eve say? She said, it was that serpent that you created. That serpent beguiled me. Romans 3, verse 23, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I do th say to you, if you are not a Christian, you may think right now, I'm needing this, I need this, I need this, I need this. What you need is to deal with the problem of sin in your own life. 
And that's far more difficult than you might imagine. For those of us who are Christians, the closer we get to God, the more sensitive we become, the more we realize we're sinners. The more we come to appreciate our own sinful state, then the more we realize how unworthy we are to approach a holy God. And that affects everything. We, we see ourselves and we say, how can Christians who claim to know God be so unlike Him? Hebrews 12 verse 1 talks about the sin that so easily entangles. Now, please be very careful here. To the lady who has MS and cancer, I'm not saying to her, you have MS and cancer because you've done X, Y, and Z, and therefore what happens is God's coming along and zapping you. If you're sitting particularly healthy just now and everything's going well and you've just doubled your pay and everything's going well in your family, you don't sit there and think, well, I'm not a sinner. In the same way, you don't, when things are going really badly, say, what did I do that all this bad stuff is happening to me? That's not what the Bible teaches. The whole picture is wrong because of sin, not just your wee part, the whole picture. And we're all connected. We're all, if you like, pixels in this picture. We're all dotted together. We're all affected by it. The universe, if you want to put it this way, is bent because of sin. Sin has entered the world and distorted it. So how does it get restored? Now, the other thing I have to say to this is, if you take God out of the picture, if you say, I don't believe in God because of suffering in the world, what do you do to change the suffering? Nothing. Zilch. The suffering's still there. You don't believe in God, so you can't blame God for it. So, there's nothing you do. So, you are left with a cold and a heartless and a random universe where things like cancer just happen, where things like earthquake just happen, and there's nothing that anyone can really do about it. But I don't think you've got these two pictures, that, that, if you like, that for me, the black canvas where, where there's no artist. And I don't think you've got the painting where you've got a cruel and vindictive God or an impotent God. So let's go and see what John says is the, the solution to that. Um, I like alliteration in these are all. This is a, um, I've put the Greek word in here not to show off, but the parakletos. I love that word, the parakletos. What does that mean? He says that Jesus Christ, he has, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. And that's a word that's used there, one word, meaning we have a paraclete, we have a paracletos. Now, the, the word that the, the Bible uses, it's a word that's used for the Holy Spirit in John's gospel as well. Now, let me ex explain this. Why do we need this? Why do we need someone to speak to our defense? If anyone does sin, why don't we just say, well, God will just forgive us? If we sin, God loves us, God will just forgive us. Why? Because we do not live in an, in an amoral universe, and we don't want to live in an amoral universe. I don't want to live in a universe where you can go out and murder a child and then say, well, God will just forgive me. It doesn't matter. I don't want to live in that kind of universe. I don't want to live in a hell where there is no justice and where there is no just God, where there's a God who did not get angry with sin. The problem is we want justice, but we need mercy. How can God give us both? And the answer comes in this, that He, he is the counsel for the defense, the advocate at court. That's what's been spoken of here, the one who speaks to the Father in our defense, the parakletos. Now, that's more than a lawyer. It is a lawyer, but it's more than a lawyer. It's a lawyer who holds your hand. It's a lawyer who genuinely is your friend. You're not just his case. 
but someone who comes, the word literally means someone who comes alongside you and speaks in your defense. Now, what's very interesting here is in John 16 and verse 6, the word parakletos is used of the Holy Spirit, and it's of the Holy Spirit speaking in defense of Jesus. Because what happens there is the Holy Spirit is coming to, to us, speaking to us, convicting us of our sin, and convicting us of who Jesus is. Jesus says, I will send the counselor. I will send the parakletos. I will send him, and he will convict you of sin and righteousness and the judgment to come, and he will also convict us of who Christ is. Now, the word is being used in a different sense in 1 John, because whereas the Holy Spirit advocates Christ to us, here Christ is being spoken of as the advocate, as the parakletos, and he's going to the Father making the case for us. So, we stand before a holy and just and pure God who cannot abide sin, and Jesus stands beside us, and He talks and speaks on our behalf. And that's why you have the three names that are there, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. Jesus, Matthew 1, 21, you are to give Him the name Jesus because He will save His people from their sins. He is not just one who speaks, but He's one who saves. He's Christ the Messiah, the one who's promised, and He's the Righteous One he has never done anything wrong. If you're standing before God and I come up and, and, and put my arm around you and speak to God on your behalf, why should God listen to me? I am a sinner as well. I'm no better than you. Why would He listen to me? I'm, I'm, I'm standing in judgment as well. But He listens to the righteous one, Christ the Messiah. We need deliverance. Our advocate does not lie. He does not say that we're innocent. He doesn't say, ah, oh, just let them off. He doesn't say it's the circumstances in which they were born. He acknowledges our guilt, and then he presents his sacrifice as our acquittal. Look back to chapter 1, verse 7. It says, the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. It's the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all sin. So, here's the second part of the lady's answer. The, the answer is, we're, we're in a picture that is spoiled. It needs to be restored. In order for it to be restored, the most radical thing that is wrong in this world and that's in our life are not the illnesses and everything else, which are the consequences of this distorted picture, but it is the sin. We need someone who will come along beside us, who will be our friend, who will deal with the deepest rooted problems of sin. And here's the important thing. When someone says, I don't believe in God and I don't go to church anymore because of the suffering I've experienced, in one sense they are completely right because their version of God and their knowledge of church is such that they think it's religion, it's, they think it's like the brownies, religious brownies. And let me explain what that means. It, it's, they think if you go to church, you're good and God will protect you. It's like Sherry Blair speaking of an advocate, and recently got in trouble in a newspaper because someone was guilty, and she stood up and said, well, he's a churchgoer, so you should be kind to him because he's a good man because he's a churchgoer. Or Nicola Sturgeon of the Scottish Parliament, when she was um, defending this man or wrote a letter in defense of one of her constituents who'd been convicted of fraud for the second time, said he's a community leader. Now, what that meant in that context was that he was a religious person, Muslim, going, you know, being involved and so on. So, being a churchgoer is equated with somehow being good. Not if you read the Bible, it's not. 
But when someone rejects that kind of God and that kind of religion, a God who says, if you go to church, then that's fine, that's brownie points, then they're not rejecting the God of the Bible. It ain't religion or being a good person or going to church that deals with the deepest rooted problems of sin, which is where the third thing comes in. Great word, propitiation. And you must learn it, okay? Because it's, there isn't any way that that's, we can put this in one word other than using this word. It's a technical word. It's from a translation of the Greek, helasmos. And if you look at the NIV, if you're reading the NIV, it's a footnote. He is the one who turns aside God's wrath. Now, what this is saying that Jesus does is it's not just that he cleanses us and not just that he forgives us, but that God is angry with us. You may not like this, but God is angry with you. God is angry with me for the sin that we commit. Why should we demand a God who is angry against other people's sin and yet say, well, don't be angry with mine? Of course not. God has to be just and consistent and fair. Now, what happens is people don't like this idea, and they don't like this idea of the cross, and so even in evangelical circles, and especially in Britain today, and this is a disaster for the church in Britain, people like Steve Chalk are saying, this is cosmic child abuse. I read that phrase that he put, and I thought, Steve, I, I love what Steve does, a lot of his stuff, and I just think, you are, you are going right to the heart of the gospel, and you're hammering a stake into the very heart of the gospel. It is not cosmic child abuse. They argue that Hilasmos is a pagan concept of offerings and bribes being offered to an angry God. So what they say is, here's this pagan idea of a God who's angry, and in these pagan ideas, people came and bribed the God so that they wouldn't punish them, and you're saying that Jesus is effectively doing that. But that is not what the New Testament is saying. We talk about the wrath of God, first of all. Is, that, is there such a thing? Yes, there is. Put three verses up for you. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their godlessness. It's there. John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Notice the word remain. If you're here and you're not a Christian, God's wrath is on you already. It's not that it will be on you. It's on you already. It's a really serious thing. Colossians 3, 6. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God may be on you already, but you ain't seen anything yet. The idea of propitiation is of this flood that's coming, and it's turned aside. The propitiation, though, the difference here between the caricature that's so often put forward and what the New Testament teaches is this, that Christ himself is the propitiation. You go across to 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. It says this, this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice, the NIV puts it, but really, more technically, as the propitiation for our sins. You don't have a vindictive God who hates us and a lovely, loving Jesus who bribes God not to hate us. You have a God who hates sin and who loves us so much that He sends His only Son. In other words, God's anger against you is overwhelmed by His love for you where He sends His Son to take that just wrath on Himself. 1 John 4, 10, 1 John uh, 3, 16 as well. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Hebrews 
Uh, 2.17, for this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and high, uh, and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. The propitiation is not a bribe. The propitiation is a gift of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Christ himself is the propitiation. You read Leviticus and you read Hebrews and you realize how this connects and how it works and how wonderfully important it is. I mean, I wish I had time, but I, I don't. I would, there's so many verses in Hebrews that tie in with that. I'll, I'll take just one, Hebrews 9, uh, 22. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. You will not be forgiven your sin without the shedding of blood. And your blood's no use, and my blood's no use, and the blood of bulls and goats is no use. And all the religions in the world, it's no use. And self-sacrifice is no use. The only thing that avails is the blood of Jesus. Now, does this pit Christ against God? No. I have come to do your will, O God, says Hebrews 10.7, citing Psalm 40. That's why, you see, propitiation is not a horrible thing. There are numerous churches who, if I go and try and teach propitiation. No, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. Oh, it's so horrible, this idea of a wrathful God and blood and sacrifice and so on. But here's a definition that I think is wonderful. It's an appeasement of the just wrath of God by the love of God through the gift of God. And it says here that it's for all the world. Does that mean that all the world is automatically saved? No, it doesn't. What it's saying here is, again, here's the picture and the picture is distorted. And what God has done in that distorted picture is send His Son to restore, to renew. And there's the, that's the only way. There's no other name by which men can be saved. If you're from China or Scotland or Africa, if you're rich or poor, you're male or female, you're young or old, whatever your religion you are brought up in, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, only begotten Son. God so loved the world. There is no other way. There is no religion. There is no religiosity. There is no philosophy, no way of life that will, can save you at the most deepest level other than the all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. First John uh, 4 verse 14, we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. His death is sufficient for the sins of the whole world. So I come back to my friend who I'm talking to, and I talk about this picture and how Christ deals with this virus that so pollutes and destroys. And I talk about in Romans 8 how the creation is being renewed in the suffering. And I talk about how if you're going to take the Steve Chalk line, if you're going to take the liberal Christian line, then what you end up with is a tea and sandwiches Jesus who does not deal with sin and cannot deal with the bent universe in which there is so much pain. They offer a tea and sympathy Jesus. Well, Jesus is right there with you in the suffering and there's nothing he can do about it. But just feel good that Jesus loves you anyway, even though he can't do anything about it. No. We worship a Jesus who will renew the heavens and the earth and create a place where there will be no more pain, suffering, and tears, and who, because He is sovereign and because He is all-powerful, even in the, the midst of the most extraordinary pain that you feel, that will still work for the good of those who love Him. There is nothing that is pointless in your life because of what Jesus has done. We don't have a teddy bear Jesus who's useless, and we don't have a slot machine Jesus who just 
anesthetize you from all the pain. We have a Jesus who is sovereign and glorious and who heals us right at the very center and core of our being and what we need most of all. So, for those of you who are not yet Christians, you need the paraclete. You need a double paraclete. You need the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit needs to come and to counsel you and to advocate Jesus Christ to you and to say to you, you need Jesus, and to say to you that Jesus is worthy of having. Not a Jesus that you can turn around and say, I don't believe in Him because people suffer. If you say that, you don't know who Jesus is. You have no idea who Jesus is. You could never say to the Jesus of the Bible, I don't believe in you because people suffer. When people suffer with the Jesus of the Bible, you would run to him and you'd say, absolutely, absolutely. There's nothing else for me. There's just nothing except this Jesus. He needs to convict you of your sin and you need to see what a great Savior he is. And you know, if you're not a Christian... I, I can't describe the frustration I feel. It's not the frustration of not seeing someone a church member. It's not the frustration of not seeing someone religious and holy. It's the frustration of you not knowing this, just this fantastic and wonderful Jesus. He's a great Savior. He's the righteous one. He's the light. He's our heavenly advocate. He's the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice. He stands in the gap and he absorbs the wrath of God that is against me and what I have done that's so wrong. And yet Jesus absorbs it all so that I am clean and pure and forgiven. That's why there's such a great invitation here. When Jesus died in the temple, the temple curtain was torn in two. You know what that is? That's Jesus opening the door and saying, come on in. You can come in. And so I would say to the lady who suffered that horrendous death, not your suffering is, is, is inexplicable or you know, there's nothing we can do about it. I'm saying, look, there is a Jesus who's ripped open this division between you and God and who says, come in, come in. For the Christian, let me say this to you. And I say this to myself, and, and I was looking at this, and I was just thinking it, and I was thinking, oh, you, you idiot. Why, if we accept this, if you believe this as a Christian, I mean, if you're the kind of person who walks out of here and goes, that was good, the minister preached about propitiation. He's sound after all, after all my fears. He's okay. He preached the big words and good theology and amen and hallelujah and I'm glad I go to a sound church. Don't you dare. Don't you dare say that. Don't you dare think that because you're not in the position to judge that. If you accept this, why are we so fearful? Why are you so lukewarm? Why are you so asleep? Why are you so complaining? Why such anger? Why such bitterness? Why such laziness? Why are you not burning to tell others this good news and to assist in every way that you can? Why are you so obsessed with trivia and so blasé about the one who took all your grief and pain? You can sing it, but it doesn't impact. Why do you hold on to that grief and pain? Why are you so cold? Why are you so lukewarm? Hebrews 12.1 talks of the sin that so easily entangles. How do we get rid of it? And as a Christian, you need to get rid of it. As a Christian, I need to get rid of it. We look to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. We look to Him. That's why we read and we know His Word. John Wesley, his mum wrote in his Bible, sin will keep you from this book, and this book will keep you from sin. For the Christian, this means that God has nothing but friendly feelings towards us. We are with Jesus. It's not love pleading with justice. 
It's justice pleading with love for our release. It is just for God to forgive us because of what Jesus has done. I can't remember who it was, probably someone like John Owen who said, Christ's intercession is the continual application of his death to our salvation. No, they cannot be judged because I died for them. No, they cannot be condemned when the devil comes and condemns you because I died for them. When your own heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart and Jesus died for you. You cannot be condemned. If you are a Christian and you are feeling condemned, it's impossible. You cannot be condemned as a Christian. No guilt in life, no fear in death, or an even older hymn. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Look at this last verse just to, to finish. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. I don't care who it is. I don't care whatever religious leader it is who says, forget the propitiation, forget the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. No, hold firmly to the faith you profess. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We say, hallelujah, what a Savior. Let's pray. Lord, bless your word to us. We thank you that when we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, one who speaks in our defense, one who is able to, because He is the propitiation, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Lord, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know that, who doesn't know You, that they would see they can't make up for the, the wrong that they have done or will do. They can't. Lord, please help us to see that we, we can't how serious all this is. But help us to see, O oh Lord, that the painting can be restored and restored to a depth and reality that is far beyond what we could imagine or think. Help each one of us and guide us and enable us to know you. In your name we ask it.